Uh, I feel overwhelmed, y'all. Um, as I think over the last few weeks and just what God has been doing amongst us, it's, it's just overwhelming to really experience God's hand upon his people. It's overwhelming to sing these songs that we sing every single week in on end, but as great as the musicians are on stage, as great as the singers are on stage, what brings that, those songs to life is the God behind those words. It's the fact that we're singing to a good God, and when we say he's amazing, it's because we've experienced that. And so this is our reminder this morning, this is our reminder that should catapult us into the week that we as God's people know an amazing God, and so when he asks things of us, we don't make excuses as if God is not worthy of all of our lives, but we hear from God in such a way that we say, God, anything that you ask of me, I, I lay it all before you. I lay it all at your feet. I cast my crown and I lay it before you because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so as we go, as we were singing, um, it's funny how the Lord just starts to kind of disrupt our plans. He starts to change things around. And I pray that as you hear God's word, would our only response be today would be greater worship. I don't have anything new for y'all. I just have Jesus. And so that's what we're going to go to today. I just have Jesus. Jeremiah 2. God's word says this. And the word of the Lord came to me. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth. Your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown, Israel was, a, was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. But this is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves? They stop asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and ravines, through the land of drought and of darkness, a land no one traveled though or no one traveled through and where no one lived. I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruits and bounty. But after you entered it, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. Let me pray. Father, how dare we think that there's something better than you out there? How dare we substitute you for lesser things, God, when we've tasted and seen how sweet and good you are. Father, we are prone to wander. This I know, God. We all know we are prone to wander. But Father, this morning, I pray that you would lead us back to you. That we would see being led back to you as the only true freedom that exists in this world. That you would call us away from the worthless idols that have made us worthless that have made us useless when it comes to your work and your plan for our lives, Lord. Disrupt us today, God. 
Father, we're not trying to just go through motions today. Father, you've already demonstrated through worship that you are here with us. Father, your hand is upon us, God. You didn't come to play games. God, you came to change your people. You came to call us back to yourself, God, because when you call us back to you, we get to see how everything else that we've been living our lives for pales in comparison. Everything else that we've given ourselves for pales in comparison, and we lay them at your feet this morning. We lay them at your feet this day, and we ask that you would remind us that, Father, you give us your sweet and precious promises. And the greatest promises that we can have from you is that you are with us, that you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us, but that lead us into continued worship. Let us continue to worship even as we hear your word preached today, God, would our hearts leap for worship, to worship you for who you are. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Some of you may be here saying, I thought we was about to talk about Acts. And we will. But as we sang those songs, the Lord really just placed that verse on my heart because I think it frames why we're even in the book of Acts today. This is the second part of a series that we've been walking in as we look at last week how God is Lord over the church. God literally, Jesus, rose from the dead, and now there's these eyewitnesses. Paul would go as far as to say Jesus, after raising from the dead, he revealed himself to over 500 people who witnessed him, saw him with their eyes. Some touched the wounds in his hand and the piercing in his side and the wounds in his feet, and they knew this is Jesus. The Bible will testify that this very same Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of the Father that he sits in a position of power above all things and above everything. And now he, in his last dying, well not, in his last words before he ascends to heaven, he gives to his people these words. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as I read that, I feel the tension within all of our hearts to say, God, I don't know if that's what I signed up for. God, I don't, I don't know if that whole me being your witnesses piece is really why I chose to follow you in the first place. God, yeah, I'm fine with coming to Sunday morning and sitting here for 90 minutes. God, I'm fine with going to a connection group or a small group. I'm fine with hanging out with other Christians. But God, I don't know if I'm okay with this whole telling other folk about you. I don't know if I'm okay with the entirety of my life being a tool in your hand to proclaim you to others rather than to live for myself. That this call and this Notice I didn't say invitation because God is not inviting you into anything. God is commanding you as his people that you will be my witnesses. Don't let your lives prove to make God a liar. Because this is the defining theme that we'll see in all of Acts. The rest of the book is built on these words, and you will be my witnesses. But what I'm grateful of is that God makes us a promise even before he calls us to do anything. He says, and you will receive power on high. 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses. And where does he say? Everywhere. That this Jesus would give new identity to his people. No longer living for themselves, but those who have been purchased by this king, this Jesus. And then been commissioned to go and to spread the good news about this Jesus that they themselves had tasted and seen was good. And unlike us, the disciples respond in obedience. And this is where the text today is going to pick off the two things that I believe that we, you and I, need to be reminded of about God. Is that as he calls us to be his witnesses, as he prophetically speaks and blows on his people, that those who have the Holy Spirit of God, it's not an option to be his witnesses. You will be his witnesses. Our only hope is that though Jesus ascends in the following verses, God has not left us. God has not left us alone. That he sends to us a helper, a counselor. He gives us his actual presence residing within us. And then he says, go, I will give you the power, go, be my witnesses. And then the rest of the book is we get to see a picture of what that actually looks like. It's easy for us to have in our own heads a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's easy to reduce our Christianity to just a Sunday morning experience. But the Bible gives us this picture of a God who rules and reigns over his people. And the people respond to this God with worship, not out of obligation. They respond to this God with, God, I give you all of me. You are all I have and you are all I want. God, I give you all of me. Use me however you so please. And they do it with delight. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so my only, uh, uh, my only request from you guys here today is that if your Christianity does not line up with the Christian walk that we see in Scripture, then you may not be a Christian. That what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus is to actually follow in his footsteps. That there is a ordered amount of steps for all of God's people to walk in day in and day out, being led and empowered by his spirit that should emulate the actual life of Jesus. If your Christianity has built something for you that is better than the circumstances that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, actually lived, are you really following Jesus? To be a disciple is to follow in the steps of Jesus. Our lives are to look like Jesus. There are variations. But Jesus is very clear about what it means to be his church. He's very clear about what it is to follow me. For those of us that may hear things today and be like, I feel like that was the fine print. I feel like I was duped. I feel like, yeah, I can trust Jesus for my salvation, but to live for him? Nah, nobody told me that on the front end, to which, I want, to which I want to plead with you, brothers and sisters, today. There's no fine print in Christianity. Jesus is completely upfront with every single person who would say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And for those that would view what Jesus is requiring from us, it's too heavy of a load. He'll say, it's fine, but you can't follow me. You can't continue to declare to be my disciple, but not obey my words. At the test for every Christian, the examination that we have to look at is that does my life line up with what Jesus says my life should look like? And if not, 
Let us pause and let us cry out to this God for mercy. Because you can sit in these pews for the next 50 years, believing yourself to be something that you're not. You can be in the Christian community. You can recite all the right books. You can quote all of the great scriptures. And yet you will be just as far from God as the person on the street who professes another faith. Jesus doesn't want to leave confusion for us. That would be totally unloving. Jesus wants to make clear to us this day in his text, I want you to know me. I'm calling you to know me. But you don't get to, you don't get to give definition to what it looks like to follow me. I do. I get to say what it looks like to know me and to follow me. I get to set the parameters and boundaries of how to enter into relationship with me. You don't. Last week, we went as far to say Jesus is Lord over his church. Not you. My fear for us, brothers and sisters, is that our culture, this country, the West, has allowed us to experience a Christianity that is cultural but not biblical. We don't have persecution like those in the Bible had. We don't. And what that allows to happen is a bunch of people come on a Sunday morning, set a sinner's prayer, live like hell the rest of the week, and it's made them comfortable. God is not to be played with, y'all. Acts 1, let me set the scene. Jesus leaves these words. You you will have power. You will be my witnesses. I'm going to send to you a helper. And then he vanishes. The disciples are with this Jesus for, for hearing his words, and then all of a sudden they see this Jesus rise into the sky on these clouds. And they're looking up, and you have to imagine, like, yo, Jesus was with me, and now I'm literally watching him descend into the heavens. And God knew how fragile our faith is, so he has to send these angels, these messengers, to be like, yo, why are you still looking up? Jesus ain't, he's gone, y'all. And that's the very moment that now the disciples have to now live a life of faith and no longer sight. That they've got to live on the words of Jesus, even though their experiences of him will be completely different. And doesn't this mark the Christian life? That we have entered into a relationship with this Jesus by faith, trusting we haven't been able to see him with our own eyes, but we know him to be true and we love him. And so now the disciples are here and they, the first thing they do is they, they go to pray. I love that. Jesus is no longer with us. He's given us his word. Let's go and cry upon him. Let's go and pray to this Jesus. And God, in their prayers, he establishes and he gives them leadership. There was a Judas of the, of the bunch one who had betrayed Jesus, one who had followed Jesus all the way up into the point to where they viewed there's something more valuable than this Jesus. He's only worth 30 pieces of gold. So he betrays him. And now Peter, this coward, Peter, the last one that should be opening his mouth, he goes on to say, yeah, this brother Judas was with us, but he got what he deserved. We need to choose amongst us one who 
who's experienced Jesus, who witnessed from Psalm from the beginning. And so at the rest of chapter one is this installment of another apostle. Now, when you read the book of Acts, know that there are parts of Acts that are prescriptive, meaning that there's things that we should actually do. And then there's descriptive parts, which is just describing some things that happen. Well, when you see the establishment of this particular apostle, it's describing something that happened. Be wary if we say on a membership meeting, hey, y'all, we need some new pastors. Uh, anybody got some dice? And then we throw the dice in, oh, it must be you. That's not how we install pastors. But here, the Spirit of God searches the hearts of men and identifies, this is who will be an apostle. And then Acts chapter 2, it happens. The disciples are the Bible says there's about 120 of them. They're at this festival, and they're meeting in this upper room, and they're just praying, and they're gathering together, and all of a sudden they start to hear these loud noises. Sounds like rushing wind, and then they see these tongues of fire appear, and it says that the fire split apart, and it starts to rest on each and every person. And the thing that's beautiful about this is that it doesn't say it just rested on the apostles. It says these tongues of fire rest on every single person person that was there. And they all together begin declaring the mysteries of God. They all begin preaching these mysteries of who God is, declaring the mysteries of God and what he's declaring to all. And as they're doing it, peep the scene. Every year there's a festival in Weston Park. And if you're not from here, just imagine this big party, this big celebration. It's called the Malcolm X Festival. And people from all over drive to this park and there's food and a celebration and people are selling beads and all these different types of things. And then out of nowhere, the church rolls up and is like, oh, like God said he's going to give us our spirit. Let's pray. What is God going to do? And then all of a sudden you start hearing this, this, the wind picks up. You start seeing these flashing images of these tongues descending so much so that now people are like, yo, wait a minute, put the cup down. What's going on? We got to go check that out. So they draw closer and they draw closer because they're starting to hear, wait a minute, I'm hearing these people talk, but I speak Arabic and I'm hearing Arabic. I speak Latin and I'm hearing Latin. I speak Portuguese and I'm hearing Portuguese. I, I, I speak, I'm hearing these declarations about who God is and I'm hearing it in my own tongue. So they gather and they gather and if that's not exciting enough, the same Peter stands up because some of them were snickering, oh, these people are drunk. They just had a little bit too much to drink. So Peter steps up and he's like, oh, it's 9 a.m. in the morning, bro. We're not drunk. But as he steps up, this coward, this betrayer, this person who abandoned Jesus in his desperate moment, he stands up. Verse 14, and he says, he stood up with the 11, his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews, and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In summary, he says, this is what God has always said, y'all, that he's going to pour out his spirit. What you see right now was told a long time ago. But not only that, he goes into this. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among and through him. Just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according 
to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says to them, and he goes again to the words of David. He begins to point them to, yo, you guys look to David as your king, but David is dead. We can go to his graveside right now, dig it up, and we'll find his bones. This Jesus says he was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, verse 33, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The first Christological sermon ever preached. You may hear those words and be like, Peter, bro, you wasn't trying to win the masses. The Jesus you crucified Many of us will say, that was a little too much, Peter. How dare you offend these people while they're enjoying their good food? How dare you disrupt their festivals, their parties, and then call these men and women to repent? That's a little too much, Peter. It's only too much if we don't, if we don't believe that there's actually a literal hell. It's only too much if we don't believe that that this day, at this moment, for these people could be their last. And that in this moment, the Holy Spirit moves into Peter. And it says that he was filled with the Spirit. He begins to declare who this Jesus is to all who were there. And what's beauty about the message of the gospel here is that we're able to be reminded that God's word is powerful. That the gospel is still Good news. And what does it say here? It says 3,000 folks came to faith. You see, many of us, we have to be reminded of the reality that God's word is just, was just as powerful then as it is now. Many of us have to be reminded that the gospel is God's means for saving other people and that when we keep our mouths shut, we're quenching God's enabling force to actually change the eternity of men. That this picture of what it looks like to be faithful to God, it's not just gathering together. It's proclaiming a message. It's calling to people as heralds, as those who know a real, powerful God to say, look, your life offends God. Not my words, his words. The way that you're living is offensive to a holy God, and God would say you're rebelling against him. You're living a life, maybe not aware even, definitely not even aware, that that lie that you just told the other day, that that cost Jesus his life, that that lustful gaze on that woman you just did, that back look as she walked by, that cost Jesus his life, that you worshiping anything else but him, sin, and that cost Jesus his life. And if that's true, and that means that there were people who are under God's wrath because of it, 
then who are we to keep our mouth shut? Who are we to think that there's a better way to win people other than presenting to them the opportunity to repent? Peter is very clear that this coward has now become the courageous. Peter has experienced what it looks like to know God, and therefore he declares only what he's seen and experienced for himself. And the beauty of it is, whereas we would think, oh, you're a killjoy, the text says, and when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Brothers, what should we do? We've heard about this Jesus, and if what you are saying is true, here's the testament to the Spirit's power. That as you share with others what we believe to be foolishness to those who are perishing, but believe that it is an aroma of Christ to all that are being saved, as you share that message and are faithful to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. That the Spirit of God takes that faithfulness and He works in it. And that a message that should offend others, where we would assume if they hear it, they'll never come to Jesus. He uses that. And He works in the heart of people. And he begins to soften that. And he begins to open their eyes and they begin to see, brothers, what must I do to be saved? Brothers, what must I do? Have I really been living my entire life in opposition to a good God? What must I do? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized. And they do just that. And 3,000 people come to the church. 3,000 people. Now we look at our church and we see 300 plus members here. But just imagine that yesterday as we went out and we shared our faith, That as we were out and about, we preached the gospel and 3,000 new Christians come to faith. And now sitting here today, there's not even enough seats to be able to contain it. If you want to talk about what it looks like to follow in Christ and what it looks like to be the church, imagine those problems. You want to talk about discipleship? There's 12 apostles. There's 300,000 plus members. And all of them are new Christians. That's a messy, messy situation, right? Notice how they don't say that the people went to the pastors, hey, pastor, can you disciple me? Hey, pastor, I just need this one-on-one meeting once a week where we can go to the coffee shop and we can read God's word and then I just need you to give me a few books. It's not in there. 3,000 people, new Christians. What does it say? Verse 42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. Pause there. You will know that the church is a place where you just come to consume when you take up the posture of, I can't grow my faith without somebody else. God, I'm not going to do anything because I don't have that older man and that older woman to come and walk with me and teach me. They didn't have it either. But look what it says. They, they devoted themselves to what they knew, what they had seen, what the, probably what they had witnessed in the life of the apostles from afar. To prayer, to fellowship, to breaking of bread. 
They devoted themselves. There's no mention of an introductory course in how to be a Christian here. No mention. Many of us, we don't have a discipline problem. The text uses the word devotion. I don't know if we really fully grasp what that means. It doesn't say discipline. A person can be disciplined and they can go through the routines, right? They can go to work. They can do what's necessary in order to punch the clock. They can leave and they can earn a paycheck. But there's a difference between devotion and discipline. That same person can go and do those same things, but experience this joy and fulfillment in doing them. How much of your Christian life is reflective of the latter? Do you experience this great deepening desire that produces this devotion to do things that are just fundamental things of what it looks like to be a Christian? Hanging with other Christians, praying with other Christians, reading God's word and obeying it with other Christians. The text says that they were devoted to those things. They persisted in it. The spirit of God is the only one that can produce that in you. Yeah, you can come to Bible study. Yeah, you can sit here on Sunday. Yeah, you can go on a prayer walk. But do you have joy? Listen, y'all. God wants us to have joy. He wants us to experience the things that any ordinary person could do and yet do them without joy. It's the equivalent of if you as a husband are sitting on the couch watching the NBA playoffs and your wife says, baby, my back hurts. Can you give me a shoulder rub? And you say, all right. Boom, 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 boom. Good. Back to the game, right? <laughs> Baby, I got you. You're good. You're good. Yeah, you disciplined yourself. You did it. You checked it off. It's different if, babies, if your wife says, Baby, I, my shoulder hurts. You cut that game off. You say, Baby, go to the back. Let's go to the back. You go and you light the candles. You put on the music. You break out the oils, you run the tub. You say, baby, you know what? And you start massaging her from not five minutes, not ten minutes before an hour. You make sure she's right. You say, baby, you, do you need anything else from me? Discipline versus devotion, right? can do is make it plain. That's all I can do. They were devoted. And I can't help but wonder how many of us, you see, it's not that we aren't, we don't know what devotion looks like. You saw that clearly. That's devotion. I don't think you see it as clearly when it comes to your Christian life. You want to know what you're devoted to? Look at your iPhone. Go in that tab that says usage rate. How much time have you spent on Instagram this week? Ten hours? 
How much time you spend in your word? Five minutes. But you'll say you're devoted. Enneagram. Oh, it got real quiet. You know everything about every single numerical number. You know the ins and outs of what that personality looks like and that personality looks like, how to interact and all those different things. What if I were to ask you to to just recite Ephesians 1? If I were to ask you to off the cuff tell me about this God that you know? Can't do it. Can't do it. You're devoted to what you think is most important. If I were to ask you about the Beyonce lyrics or the Jay-Z lyrics, let me not just pick on the sisters, all the Jay-Z lyrics. <laughs> and we were to pop in your favorite CD, I guarantee you, you'd be able to recite word for word every harmony, every lyric, every pause, every ad lib. But then, tell me about the words of your Savior. If somebody asks you, tell me about Jesus, how do I become a Christian? I don't know. I just know he saved me. Hmm. Everybody's devoted to something. The problem isn't that we don't know what devotion looks like or means. It's just that we're devoted to the wrong things. God holds out for his people. Look, we read Jeremiah 2. I saved you. You experienced me. I remember early on in your walk with me where you got up early in the morning and all you wanted to do was seek my face. All you wanted to do is pray to me. Not reciting empty words, but talking to me as if I were your friend. All you wanted to do was tell other people about me because I was your prize. I was your possession. But what have I done? What did you find in me? What did you find in the life that I've given you that would make you say, you know what? That's better. Let me go. Drift. God, you're only worthy of my 90 minutes. God, you're only worthy of my five minutes. And then we masquerade around here and we say, yeah, I'm devoted. I'm devoted. I know my pastors have called us to pray. I'll do it if I feel like it. Man, 6.30, only got seven in, in hours and 59 minutes of sleep. I need that one more minute. I can't go. Devoted. And I could guilt y'all into that. That's not my intention. What do they find at the end of their devotion? Everyone was filled with awe. Awe. I don't know about you, but being in a place where I'm awestruck about God, there's nothing better. A few of us, we went out yesterday, and and I'm going to keep sharing about what God is doing and those who are stepping out of faith, even for those that didn't make it, that are part of his church, that live lives of faith. We came together and we heard God's word and we 
prayed and as each person is praying and praying to God, asking him, God, help our unbelief. Sometimes we don't believe that you actually save folk. Sometimes we look around and all we see is Christians and we're not even reminded of the reality that there are people out there that don't know him. And because we have abdicated our responsibility as witnesses, we've fallen into a place of disbelief that God is still powerful. And so we prayed together. And then we went out, 12 of us. 12 people out of a church of 300 people professing to know Jesus. We went out. And we had our plans. We said, you know what, we're going to go to the mall. That's where it's going to be more traffic. So the four of us, me, Keith, Nick, everybody who has a key to our building, we left it in here. So we get out the door and we're like, yo, I left my phone, let me go get it. And there is no phone, no key to be found. So we're like, all right, well, we can't carpool over there. We're going to walk. So we walk. Yeah, it was a long walk. And as we're going, just going up to person after person, asking them about their life, telling them about Jesus, looking for opportunities, praying for one another. Person after person, we just keep stopping. And people are just like, yo, like, what's your angle? Like, what you mean? Oh, y'all just trying to build up your numbers? Nah, we're not trying to build up our numbers. Not in the way that you think. We don't care if you sit with us on a Sunday, but yet you're still going to hell. We want you to know this Jesus. We engage in conversation after conversation and it comes to a point where Nick and I, we're talking with a person, a guy who asks us for $5. We go, we give him some money, we begin talking to him, sharing, just learning about his life. Tell us about your background, brother. He begins to spill his life, his background. He's an elderly man, probably 75 years old. He mentions, man, I lost my brother, and I lost my mom, and I lost my cousin, I lost my friend. It's like everybody around me is just dying, which I say, so what do you believe about life after death? He begins to say, you know what? I don't know. That's what I'm wrestling with right now. We begin to share the goodness of God and what God has done. Nick starts asking these questions, and then what's crazy is a week and a half ago, we walked these streets on Hopkins, and a guy that I knew Last five years, lived in the house, and I began to pray, God, give me opportunity. Give us opportunity to witness to this brother. He doesn't know you. Give me opportunity. I haven't seen him. I've moved out of the neighborhood. I haven't seen him in a while. I don't know where he stands with you, God. Give me opportunity. As I'm talking to this man, Richard, Mr. Richard, a black Mercedes pulls up. I look in the car real quick. Is that, is that my boy? He sits on the car as we're still talking. To, for about 10 minutes, gets out of the car, goes into the store. And right as we're about to leave, he comes up and he says, yo, Rich, hey, man, I've been looking for a church and I thought about you. God answers a prayer a week and a half ago in this moment with an opportunity where a brother winds up, not in a random place, but in a divinely appointed place. We reconnect. At the same time, hold your applause, there's more. At the same time, this man, Richard, says, you know what? I pray to God for him to send me people who would be able to answer my questions about who God was. I've been wrestling. I've been, see, see, I don't want to play with God. Like, if I'm going to give myself to God, then I want to know what I'm signing up for. Because I take this seriously. And he said, y'all are answered prayer. That this God heard my cries and he sent y'all to answer them. There's no room for boasting in that. Two hours on a Saturday morning, 
And I would be as bold and courageous to say that we accomplished more faithful gospel witnessing in those two hours than we've probably done in the four years of this church. If that stings, it should. What has the church become? What is this? What have we become? Where those things seem abstract. 300 members in a service for 90 minutes. 12 members walking the streets telling people about Jesus. And then you think, why is God not adding to his church? Let me paint for a picture for y'all. Cultural Christianity versus biblical Christianity. Biblical church growth. The spirit is given to empower us. The gospel is preached faithfully by its people who don't know Jesus yet. The Spirit uses the gospel to convict man's hearts and bring them to repentance. Souls are saved and the church grows not by shuffling of deck of other members thinking this is the popular place to be, but actually non-Christians who didn't know Jesus sitting in our pews. Discipleship begins to take place where people are confronted with the gospel and now people actually take responsibility for the growth of one another by devoting themselves to the things God gives as gifts. 3,000 people. That church, daily, people adding to it. Western church. You want to plant a church? Get the most gifted speaker. Find a building or a location where you can gather on Sunday mornings. Get dope musicians and dope singers. Start service in a convenient time for people because they have Sunday football to watch. Establish a social media presence. Invite other people, namely Christians, to church can have a church of a thousand people with that and yet never experience the power of God. Never. What rules in our hearts will determine our actions? What rules in our hearts will determine our actions? We can't lie to God, y'all. We can lie to one another. Yeah, I'm good does questions like, when's the last time you shared your faith ever arise in any of your conversations? Have you ever experienced God setting up divine appointments with people that you can't explain? Have you ever, like Tim experienced yesterday, talked to a person hostile against Christianity? Hate the church for what it's done, for the harm it's brought to communities like this. But yet, as you listen, as you start testifying about Jesus, you see their countenance change. You begin to see the softening of their heart as they incline an ear, tell me more. There's something different. Your spirit is refreshing. It's Christianity. That's Christianity. You tell me what's better. Cultural Christianity, biblical Christianity. Because if you're a Christian in here today, when you hear that, your heart's starting to swell. You're like, yeah, that's it. That's what I was saved for. 
That's what I want to give my life to. I want to have stories like that. I want to experience that. To which God says, all of you can be filled with my spirit. All of you can be used like that. I've just been waiting on you to actually trust me. I've just been waiting on you to actually believe that the words that I say are true, that they're real, that they're powerful, and that you actually would get off your behind and walk. Look for opportunities. I've got them for you so that you can come back and you can testify. God, my neighbor is going through a divorce. I don't know what to do. You can pray. You can engage in a conversation. And you can tell him about the hope that you have in Christ. And you can see him, God, take this painful and dreaded situation and restore hope. Not in fixing the circumstances, but in the God of the circumstances. I got a call last night from somebody, a text last night. I got a call from him three week, about three days ago about a friend going through a terrible divorce. He said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I said, brother, let's pray. Listen to him, but call him to what God calls all people to. That he's not where he is by accident. He's lived his life probably in a way that is dishonoring to the Lord. So he has that conversation. And he says, a few days later, I get, I get this text last night as I'm preparing this sermon. He says, man, I just led my friend to Christ. He's repented for his sins. And he said that what he heard, what he heard in the sermon last week, God used to convict him. And then now this conversation I'm having got built on that to lead him to a place to where he's a brother now. Let's pray. God still saves people. And I think you, need, you and I need to hear that and we need to be reminded of that, that God still has a people. He still has a plentiful harvest out there that he wants to save. And he's always he has always, he uses you and I as the means, as the vessels to one, display the power of God in that we are Christians, but also as a means of dispensing the power of God to those who don't know him. View your life like that. Secondly, God is with us wherever we go. Acts 3, Peter and John go to the temple. Ordinary, routine, situation. They see a man there, 40 years, lame. Everybody knows of him. Every day he sits in the same spot at the temple gate. Peter and John come, they walk by him, and at this moment they recognize this man's dignity. He says, help me. So they say, brother, I don't have money. What I do have, I give to you. The brother is healed, healed of his infirmity. Pay attention to that healed of his sickness, and he rejoices. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I don't think that's the point. That in their faithful witnessing, in their faithful ministry that the Spirit has given them, a few people, they bring the brother who is on the outside of the, uh, of the temple courts, bring him in with them, rejoicing, praising God. <clears throat> As they're doing it, opposition comes. People, haters. Man, by what power do you do this in? So they snatch him up. You've got to recall that Peter again stands up. This coward, this feeble man, Peter stands up and he addresses them. And he gives another sermon. And what's great about this sermon is that it's very similar to the last. 
Peter is not shaping it. He's not trying to change it. He's not trying to curve the edges to make it more palatable. He boldly tells him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate. Though he had decided to release him, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of it. In verse 19, therefore repent. Now imagine Peter's preaching to the very people who just witnessed this lame beggar healed. And the police come, and they handcuff him. They drag him off the stage. And he goes to jail and spends the night, wakes up at 5 a.m., gets a bologna sandwich with Velveeta cheese. Struggle food, you're right. And they bring him in to interrogate him. By what name? Yo, tell me the deal. What name? How are you doing this? Peter doesn't cower. He doesn't cower. Peter, in that moment, probably questioned, God, are you really with me? Isn't it moments like that where we begin to lose confidence of, God, I was cool witnessing for you when all things were good. But when it's actually going to cost me something, I don't know. God, I don't know if I can actually stand firm at my job and say I've got convictions about the value of a woman and the, the fetus within inside her. And your policies offend my God. Am I willing to stand up even if it costs me my job? Am I willing to stand up within my families and say, you know what? My life doesn't make sense to you. I know that. Because though, yes, I got the college education. Yeah, I know you thought that I was going to be a doctor one day. But God has called me to give my life overseas in a foreign country, and it may cost me my life. But that's what I'm going to do. You and I both question those things. We wonder, God, will you be with me? Will you be true to your word, even when it's difficult? Luke 12, Jesus said, before he even died, Luke 12, 11, whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. And then it happens happens. Peter, in true Peter fashion, tells him, yo, you crucified Jesus. You. Peter, you got to chill with that. No, you crucified Jesus. And he's alive. Your plans didn't work. You want to know what power we did this in? By Jesus. Towards the end of the book, it says, priest, Officers were so perplexed because they were like, yo, this is the best, the best compliment anybody could ever give you. The best compliment. Chapter 4, verse 13. And when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And then they let him go. Their seminary education wasn't what God used to impress other people. Theological frameworks that they had created wasn't what the people 
been know him, looked at, and were like, yo, I'm impressed by him. In fact, God had made them weak. He had said, you know what? Ordinary people, untrained, uneducated, stand here testifying about this Jesus, and the mark of their life is that we know because their life looks so familiar to Jesus, we know beyond a doubt, man, y'all have been with Jesus. Y'all have been with Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus preserves them, lets them go free. The rest of the story is they go back to the people, they celebrate, they pray to God, and they go and do it again. And they keep on doing it. And here's the promise of the Christian life. Jesus will lead us, but we don't get to set the boundaries of where we will go. Jesus will lead us. He will be with us. Read through the book of Acts and show me one time that what Jesus' words that he said to his people didn't hold true. Show me. They don't exist, y'all. One pastor received a report. Received this report from one of his members who had moved into the rough, a rough neighborhood in the city because they felt God was calling them to go and live amongst people who nobody else wanted to live amongst, nobody else wanted to reach. So she's writing in this letter, Pastor, so hard with my two little girls that every single night we go to bed and the threat of gunshots coming through our windows. We hear them night in and never and night out. Scary. She doesn't stop there. Though it's scary, it's worth it. It's worth it. The question you and I have to answer is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? Your life will not change until you actually answer the question. Jesus all that I really truly need and if that's so then that means I believe his words are true I believe that he's with me I believe that even if he leads me into the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil I will fear no evil so we go we live lives countercultural to what the world sees and when we do that God breathes on it he breathes on community that's sacrificial and generous. That isn't living for material gain. He breathes on that, and the world begins to look on and he says, that's different. What would make you sell your house to meet the need of those poor in your church? That happened. What would make you give up all of your possessions, everything that you worked for, in order to give to somebody who didn't work as hard as you? At least in your mind. God forms for himself a people who aren't bound by what this world says is valuable. He forms for himself a people who give them his lips and say, God, I will speak whatever it is you want me to say. He, gives for, he forms for him a people, the church, that will be made up of people who say, God, I'll risk it all for you because it would be better for me to die even than to live as if you didn't exist. God's inviting us into more. He's inviting us into so much more. We don't exist to entertain you. We don't exist to make following Jesus convenient. 
comfortable for you. We don't exist for that. Not because we as pastors have decided that, but because God has decided that. And a pastor told me one day as an encouragement to other pastors, he said, pastors, the cross will never fit conveniently in your back pocket. It's a cross. And every Christian has to decide, will I take up this cross and will I follow Jesus? Or will I leave it? Say, God, that's too heavy. That, 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 that disrupts my plans, God. Let me go do this. We sing songs like, hallelujah, thank you for God for saving me. You say, your way is so much better. When you read this, don't you think that God's way is so much better? You hear this, that God's purpose and his plan for his people is this. Isn't that so much better than anything you could have dreamed of? That's the call. That's the invitation. Follow in the footsteps of your Lord and Savior and know that what you will gain is so much better than anything you'll lose. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. I don't presume that these heavy words are making us at all comfortable, God. That would be foolish of me. But Father, I pray that we would see in scriptures that this is not an exception to the rule. This is the rule. That mercy comes in and it allows us to see you. and changes our hearts and it reorients our lives. And The marker of a Christian is that our lives actually follow the pattern and shape of your son Jesus' life. And the other followers that have followed him from the very beginning even until now. Father, let it not be said that the American church is a dead church. Father, would you raise up even in this place, Father, people who even now your spirit is ministering to, things that you have placed on their hearts for what you wanted them to do, that they've allowed the cares of this world to choke and suppress. Now you're bringing them to the surface, God. We pray that they will respond in obedience. Father, will we all find a place where we should repent for living for something other than you? Father, we have accused you. We have found fault in you. And we have believed the lie that there's something out there better than following you. Would your spirit lead us to repentance? Would your spirit lead us to confess it freely, knowing that our confession hits the ear of a merciful Savior, a God who loves us, who, and that love hasn't changed at all. He loves us just as much now as he did the moment in which we felt the need to Repent and confess. Father, I pray that from this day forward, that we as Cornerstone Church and other churches, that we would actually be able to testify of the power at work in his people, not just individually, but corporately. Father, we have great expectations that you have planted us in this neighborhood, in this city for such a time as this, and that you have lost people that you love, that you have called to be yours in this neighborhood and in surrounding neighborhoods, and you're waiting for your people to be faithful. Will we be those faithful laborers who you're raising up? Will we value the life you have for us far beyond the life that we can create for ourselves? Father, we spend too much time doing it our way. Father, help us to believe that your way is so much better. We ask this in Jesus' name.